Well, good uh, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Um, I'm hoping you're all in a fairly good mood. I want to draw your attention uh, to two things. Number one, uh, I'll try to do this almost every time we meet. Uh, this chart, which um, a friend of mine did a while back, I really appreciate this. To me, this is one of the best visuals that you can have for trying to put together all the disparate parts of the book of Revelation. So let's think of it uh, this way, if we can. You, of course, you have the introduction, but the, if you think of it as a timeline, the main, the main theme of the book of Revelation is this, and let's just think of it that way, as the timeline. As you know, Timelines usually are horizontal. So this is the timeline, and you have you know the introductory material in chapters four and five. Uh, that's in the original. That's yellow. <laughs> that's why down here in the box it says yellow reflects the uh, the material in heaven. Then chapter six, all the way through, uh, really chapter eighteen, and and nineteen is the second coming of Christ. Twenty is judgment and other things we'll talk about. And twenty-one, twenty to uh, the new heaven and new earth. But this, I believe, is how we should try to visualize the book of Revelation. This is the timeline, and it is a series of three seven-part judgments. Now, that sentence should make sense to you. A series of three seven-part judgments. starts with seven seals, followed by seven trumpets, followed by seven bowls. And that's the way this is laid out. The boxes both below and above this timeline, uh, we'll call those parentheses. My metaphor for them is bunny trails, but parentheses, okay? And we are, to this morning, we're right in the middle of the first one of those, which is chapter 7. Okay, now, everything I've just said in the last four or five sentences, does that make sense? If you keep, and that's why, you know, I, I gave it to you. But if you keep this in mind, and somewhat keep it in front of you, each time you open the book, this really helps to make sense of what, when you first start reading it, is just so complicated. I mean, it's just almost overwhelming. That's why a lot of people just give up. <laughs> and they just, they, they don't really make the effort to try to understand what's going on. Now, in addition, a lot of the things we've studied before with the book of Daniel and so on, I will keep bringing in. So, got that? I'll probably say something about this each time we meet for the next several weeks. The other thing, I, I draw your attention to this because I already talked about this last week, but I want to review this again, and I, I, again, I'll probably keep talking about this. Because as you look at the judgments, seven seals followed by seven trumpets followed by seven bowls, the phrase that is used throughout the Bible that captures and summarizes and alludes to these judgments, not in the direct order and the comprehensive nature that you see here, but it is always referred to as the day of the Lord. And if you go back, I wrote a, an article on this a number of years ago, but if you look at the day of the Lord and all of the descriptions in the Old Testament prophets as well as what Jesus says in the Alba Discourses, what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he mentions the day of the Lord, all of the things that we're reading about here are discussed in these passages. I don't know if you're following what I'm saying. In other words, the day of the Lord 
is a concept in the Bible that summarizes this time of universal judgment right before Jesus comes back, but also setting us up for the blessing that will be a part of the second return of Christ. So right now, we are focused, right now meaning as we're studying the seals, trumpets, etc., we're focusing on the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. All right, now, the thing is I've said in about the last five sentences, does that make sense? Okay, I mean, I just, these are the framework type of issues you have to keep in front of you. Each time you sit down and study the book of Revelation, you have to keep these things in front of you, kind of this timeline, as well as this concept. Because what is going on here, and, and it's organized unlike anything else in the Bible, but the details of each one of these is not new. These things are in other parts of the Bible. It's just now in the book of Revelation, it's explaining to us how and when they're going to occur. Is there a place on the timeline that, where we, that we can think of as the day of the Lord? Yeah, well, really, um, Rob, the whole thing. From chapter, really chapter 6, because chapter 4 and 5 were in the throne room of God. But chapter 6 on, because remember, as I mentioned, I haven't dealt with that yet. I will. But the concept of the day of the Lord has a time of judgment and a time of blessing. Right now, we're talking about the judgment phase. The blessing phase is when Christ returns and the, the kingdom and the new heaven. And new, that's the blessing phase. But we're not, we're not there yet. Okay, does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. It is tough duty, though, trying to... You know, I, I know it is. You know, it is for me. Well, no, no, listen, it is. Don't, don't demean yourself there, Woody. I mean, it is. It's just tough. I just want to admit that. Well, no, it, it is. But that's, <laughs> I'm having a tough time with it, but I'm, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, let's just, uh, just think about this one more time. When you're talking about the day of the Lord, Woody, you think of judgment, time of judgment and a time of blessing at the end. Right now, with the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls, we're just getting started here. This is a time of judgment. Yeah. And it's universal judgment on, on, God's, on God's earth because of sin and rebellion against him <clears throat> and the refusal of the human race to accept his gift of Jesus. All right. Now, let's, let's make sure, uh, let's now go to chapter 7, which we started last week, following your chart, by that I mean this, you see that chapter 7 is that first parenthesis. So if you, some of you weren't here last week, but we spent part of the hour last week just going through the first six seal judgments. And we went through those, talked about them briefly. They're in your notes that I gave you, that the packet of notes that I gave you. And then John says, I saw the Lamb, as he then seals, the angel come and seals uh, 12,000 from each tribe for a total of 144,000 to be his witnesses. We covered all that last week. All right? Oh, I know. The way, the way to break this down, by this I mean chapter 7, is you have the ministry of the 144,000, because I put this, just for purposes of illustration, above the day of the Lord judgment, while this is going on, is God still is God still giving people a time and opportunity to respond to his grace? Mm. The answer is yes. And what chapter 7, verses 1 through 8 tells us is, is these individuals, the ministry of 144,000, they are on 
center stage. They are the prime representatives of Christ and his gospel during the tribulation period. Because remember, Jesus calls this the tribulation. That's where we get that. Okay, the rest of chapter 7, which is verse 9 through 17, tells us that their ministry yields multitudes of people that come to faith. And so chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, now focuses on these are the people. These are the people that respond to the message of the gospel that they're delivering. You follow me? You, you either do or you do not. Do you follow me? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I hate to I hate to sound like an elementary teacher, do you? but it, I just want to make sure, because if, if I lose you somewhere, you're never going to get caught up. So I just, as we go step by step by step, I want you to try to understand this. Current projections of populations right now uh, of the Jewish nation. How, 13 million. Okay, 13 million. So you'd have 144,000 ministering, if it were today, ministering, in essence, to the balance of the population. And of that, many multitudes would come to know Christ, yeah. but not even all of but not the entire population. Is, is that... Entire population of Earth or of, the Jewish population? Of the Jewish population. Not, no, not yet. Many, many, many will come, but there will be, uh, Romans eleven twenty six says, Zechariah 12 says, that when Christ returns, they will respond to him in faith. They will look upon him whom they pierced and believe. Zechariah 12. I said 13 million, I meant 18 million, excuse me. There are 18 million Jews on planet Earth today. All right, verse 9, Revelation 7. We've gone through the 144,000 sealed, sealed by God to be his witnesses during this terrible time of judgment. Verse 9, after these things, what things? The sealing and sending out of the 144,000, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count. Every nation, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I'll stop there for just a minute. It is obvious that the group in verse 9 is not the same group as 144,000, right? Because the 144,000 with crystal clear clarity from verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8 are Jews. 12,000 from each one of the tribes. This is a multitude from every nation all tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, crying out, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I'll stop there for a minute. That I did, don't, I mean, don't stumble over that. This isn't difficult. That they are clothed in white robes is something that is consistent throughout the Bible. The person who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, who has put their faith in him, they wear white robes. It's the same true about the uh, standing before the throne. That's not symbolic. These people haven't been martyred. Uh, some are, as you will see later on in verse 13, 14. Some are martyred. Some of these are martyrs. Not all. 
Okay, it's, all it means is that they're cleansed and, 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 and pure, so to speak, before the Lord. And carrying the palm branches, that is a symbol of peace and, and, and uh, tranquility with God. And they're praising him for the salvation that he has brought to them. Verse 11, and all the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. That is very consistent with what we read in chapter five a couple of weeks ago. That exact same praise hymn is being sung in Revelation chapter five, verse 14. It's exactly the same. Okay, now again, this can be overwhelming, but it isn't. Don't let it overwhelm you. All you have just read with me is you're in the throne room of God and you have these concentric circles, four living creatures, 24 elders, angels, and multitudes worshiping and praising God. Got it? Now verse 13. One of the elders answered, saying to me, those who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? Now, answer. And I said to him, my Lord, I do not know. And he said to me, these are the ones. These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. Who called this period the great tribulation? Jesus did in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. So again, when you read something like verse 14, that's not new truth. That shouldn't surprise you. This is the language that has consistently been used throughout the prophetic portions of God's word. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have been cleansed. They have, by faith, they've appropriated his finished work. And for this reason, verse 15, they're before the throne of God. They've served him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. They shall no longer hunger nor thirst anymore. Neither shall the sun beat down on them. Please note this phrase, nor any heat. So Revelation 7, 16 is my life verse. There is no heat in heaven. You did notice that. I just want to claim that, anchor that in the heart of your soul. No reflection from that lake of fire. (laughs) You got it. Verse 17, for the lamb, and as you know, that's Jesus, is in the center of the throne, shall be their shepherd, shall guide them to the springs of the water of life, and shall wipe every tear from their eyes. Now, again, don't. Verse 17, it's a wonderful description, but there's nothing there that's new. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So that's not new truth. He's just saying, as John is writing and writing down what he says, the lamb says is going to be their shepherd. She'll guide them to the springs of the water of life. The springs of the water of life. We'll read more about that. That's described in Isaiah And in Zechariah, I believe, it's just, this is, we will drink of the water in heaven, and it's eternal, it's eternal life. It's just, it will sustain us for eternity. That's all it's telling us. They will live forever, and God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And in your notes, I wrote, 
there are no tears in heaven. My father, he's 91, my father still has old Tennessee Ernie Ford records. I know none of you know who Tennessee Ernie Ford is. Okay, some of you do. But my dad, and he, he's, he's not well at all, so he doesn't play them anymore. But I can remember many, many times my dad playing that record. And one of the songs Tennessee Ernie Ford sang was No Tears in Heaven. I mean, it was just, just it's echoing my mind as I read this version this morning as I was studying for the class today. I don't know why, but I just remembered that. Because what it's telling us is here, these who die during the great tribulation, they're cleansed, they're before the throne, and the, the Lord, their shepherd, is taking care of them, he's giving them eternal life, and he wipes away all their tears. And it's, it's, it's a magnificent picture of the fruit of the 144,000, these saints who are saved during the tribulation period are experiencing that bliss and comfort totally opposite of everything they were experiencing in that time of the terror of the first seven seals. The Great Tribulation. Yes. Is that limited to this part where they're responding to the 144,000? And once they have given their life and, and believed in the Lord, that is the end of the Great Tribulation? Or is the Great, great Tribulation great, goes... The Great Tribulation is seven years long. Okay, right. Okay, it's what in Daniel 9 is called the 70th week. And Jesus, it talks about that exactly paralleling Daniel chapter 9, because he talks about the middle of the week, the one, the abominable one shows himself and all that. So it's, it's seven years, Woody. So the Tribulation years. is seven years of time. And we are at the beginning of that seven-year block of time with the opening of the seven seals. Well, but the words they use here, they have come out of the tribulation. Mm -hmm. The tribulation really isn't finished yet. It's That's correct. The very beginning of the tribulation. It's there, I mean, I can't give you an exact time, but we are at the front end of the tribulation period because it's going to get worse, as you will see, as we go forward here in the next chapter and so on. But it's the, the assumption is that many of these are martyred. We'll, you'll see why in the next chapters. But, but the assumption is either they die or they're martyred. They have put their faith in the Lord as a result of the work and ministry of the 144,000. So what, what I'm trying to do, and, and I think this is the right way we are to look at this, the connection between the first eight verses and verses 9 through 17 is cause and effect. Do you understand what I just said there? That's the connection between these two. The cause is the ministry of 144,000. The effect are all these multitudes in heaven that come out. If we didn't have verse 14, it wouldn't be clear to us. But verse 14, in answering that rhetorical question of verse 13, is they have come out of the great tribulation. So it's telling us who they are. Okay. 144,000 continue their ministry through the seven years. That is, multitudes will come throughout that. That's correct, because we will see the 144,000 mentioned again in Revelation chapter 14. They're going to come up again. That's correct. I think the assumption we're to make is that they continue that ministry during the entire seven-year period, and multitudes are coming to faith during that period. You wouldn't. 
No, no, wait. I, go ahead. It must be a very difficult period for them. Absolutely, yeah. And that's why so many, and we will directly read about that in chapter 13, so many that choose to follow Christ will pay with that for their life, with their life, yeah. And you, you wouldn't think that that would be the case where there's so much pressure and, and, and uh, slaughter and, and persecution. You'd think that they would, might capitulate and yield to that evil, but it's just counter to that, which really shows the power of the Spirit yeah, of God. Yeah, that's right. Because Antichrist, whom we will soon read about, um, he will persecute and go after everyone that does not bow down and worship him. Yeah. So it will cost. I mean, today, for the most part, it doesn't cost us to stand for Christ in the United States at least. But in this period of time, you it will cost dearly, in most cases, with your life. All right, seven chapters down. We're ready to start verse, excuse me, chapter eight. All right, now let's let's do a review again. The the timeline of the book of Revelation is following the sequence of the three judgments of seven parts to each one of the three. We have one part down already. The three sealed, excuse me, the sealed judgments are over. The seventh seal has to be broken, and that's what the beginning of, of chapter eight does for us. All right? Now we're back on the timeline. Chapter 8 puts us back on the timeline, the completion of the seal judgments and the opening of the seven trumpet judgments. Okay? And when he broke the seventh seal, so you can now understand that chapter 7 is a bunny trail. It's like a parenthesis. Because chapter 6 ends with the sixth seal. Now, and then you have chapter 7, this parenthesis. Now we're back to the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, as I, as I mentioned in, in your notes, and you just can think of that intuitively, from everything we've read so far, heaven is not a quiet place. There's praise and adoration and exclamation and, uh, and shouting and praise to the Lord. We just read about it. Now there's an ominous silence in heaven, and it's specific for a half hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, and another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. All right, now, you'll see this in verse 6 in a minute. We are to understand that the seventh seal, as it's opened, yields the seven trumpets, judgments. You follow me? That's, that's how we should see this. That's how we should make that connection. But before we get to the seven trumpets, which resumes in verse 6, this little tiny parenthesis. And another angel came, verse 3, stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add to it the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hands. And the angel took the censer, he filled it with fire of the altar, threw it upon the earth, and there followed peals of thunder, sounds, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Ominous anticipation of the seven trumpet judgments. Now we saw this before and we see it here. 
this incense, the prayers of the saints are all of these people before the throne of God that are praying to him. We're going to read some of their prayers. How long, Lord, till you avenge us? How long till you vindicate us? But all it's telling us is these prayers are going up before the Lord. The language there is just the language of, of the Old Testament sacrifices. All right. Now, the blowing of the trumpets. The word trumpet there is an interesting word. When you think of the word trumpet, you think of... Joel, didn't you play the trumpet? No. No, I thought you did. For some reason, I thought... Huh? Oh, yeah, well, that's what I play, the trombone. Okay. That's almost as majestic of an instrument as the trumpet. <clears throat> Anybody play the trumpet in here? Okay, Jim did. Well, if you can, in your mind's eye, just think of what a trumpet looks like. It's kind of long, it's got that tubular thing. That's not the word here. The word is the shofar, the ram's horn that was used in ancient Israel to call the people to worship. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a ram's horn. It's kind of a curly Q thing. Every time I went to Israel, no, not every time. Almost every time I went to Israel, somebody would say, when you're over there, buy me a shofar. And I would always resist doing that because you have no idea how hard it is to get a shofar back to the United States. It isn't just a little thing you put in the case. I mean, these things are these long curled things. And so I would always, I even had a guy say, I'll pay $100 to get one for me. And I said, well, uh, I could use the money. My kids are still in school, but no, I'm not going to do it. Because one, I didn't want to carry it around all of Israel. And two, I didn't want to have the problem bring it back. So I gave him an address on how you can get one shipped to you. It's much easier to do it that way. I'm telling you more than you need to know. But the shofar is, it, the shofar one is not the trumpet that you think of that you play in an orchestra or, or whatever in the marching band or whatever. It's the shofar. And I'm saying that because this is very, very sensible that this is what it would be because consistently throughout the Bible, the trumpet is a call to be alert, in some cases to judgment, sometimes to blessing. So this series of seven trumpets is announcing judgment. Now, the seven seal judgments were very serious and very devastating. The seven trumpet judgments are far more serious and far more devastating. Because we're following the timeline through these seven years. And so we're getting close to being almost halfway through. Now, let's read these. So, are you still with me? Verse 7. And the first sound, verse 6 just tells us seven trumpets, seven angels, seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them, to blow them. And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. Now, when we read that, it, it's, it is difficult to understand whether blood is being used metaphorically or whether it's being used literally. But hail... Fire mixed with blood were thrown to the earth. The consequence, a third of the earth is burned up. A third of the trees are burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. So the first trumpet judgment 
is affecting the vegetation on planet Earth. Can you envision an Earth with a third of all the vegetation and all of the grass virtually destroyed? That's an unimaginable kind of development. We see a little bit of it with some of the, you know, like out west where it's been very dry and the fires start and they spread quickly. But you're talking there about, you know, several thousand, maybe tens of thousands of acres. Here you're talking about a third of planet Earth. Remember, this is the day of the Lord. This is the language you see in the book of Amos. Amos says this, talks like this. Second judgment is verse 8 and verse 9. And the second angel sounded, meaning he blew his trumpet, and something like, now it's, it's a simile here, something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Now the word sea there means the salt water on planet Earth. It's the oceans and seas. This isn't fresh water. Burning like fire was thrown into sea, and the third of the sea became blood, or it could be trained, became like blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Okay, what is happening here? And it's hard. It's, it's, the simile there, like a great mountain, is that a meteor, or is that the explosion of a volcano? Like Mount, Mount think, remember Mount St. Helens a number of years ago? The whole top of it just blew off. If you've ever been to Pompeii, um, there in, in AD 79, when Mount Vesuvius, thought, Vesuvius, the whole top of the mountain blew off. That's what happened. So we don't know. It's hard to know. It's, it's simile, figurative language. But the effect is the effect on the oceans, the salt water of planet Earth. A third of the creatures. Now, if the octopus... What's the plural of octopus? Octopi? Or is it just octopi? octopi? If a third of the octopi are killed, that can be sort of serious if you eat delicate restaurants. But a third of the fish, that is catastrophic. This is the day of the Lord. He's pouring out his judgment on this rebellious planet right before his son returned. Verse 10 and verse 11 is the third trumpet. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water. This is the fresh water on the planet. It would seem reasonable that the description in verse 10 is a meteor shower or whatever. And the name of that star is Wormwood, and that's mentioned in the Bible seven times. Wormwood is a very bitter wood, and it made the waters bitter. And many men died from the waters. So presumably we are assuming that this affects the fresh water of planet Earth and affects the quality of that fresh water, and it affects the life of people on planet Earth. Are you getting a sense of how horrific the day of the Lord's going to be? It's going to be, yes, it's going to be not impossible, but it's going to be extraordinarily difficult. 
the, the new normal of revelation is going to be very abnormal. <laughs> it's going to be very, very difficult. It's just horrific. It, it really is. Are we assuming Christians or no Christians on earth? Well, Fred, it depends on where you put the rapture of the church. And our, our tendency has been to be pre-trib, right? Well, it's not my tendency, it's my conviction. <clears throat> That's my conviction. But there are people, I mean, the issue is, and I think we've said this before, the issue is not you can't, nobody can, I don't believe in the rapture, you can't say that. That's taught in First Thessalonians 4, John 14, and so on. The question is always the time, where are you going to put it? Some people have it at the beginning of the tribulation, some people have it in the middle, and some have it at the end. So assuming that... Well, if you if you believe that the rapture of the church occurs at the beginning of this period, then uh, Christian believers will not be here. Now, those who are responding to the message of the 144,000, but as we already read, and we're going to read a lot more about that in coming chapters, they they will uh, they will pay dearly for that that belief in Christ, and we'll learn why as we get to chapter 13. So the rapture occurs for Christians at that point in time. That's correct. That doesn't exclude other people from becoming Christians, and presumably there are because they talk That's about them. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, Rob, the, the general, and I mean this is a whole other area of teaching that we haven't specifically addressed, but it. It is generally wrapped, the, the idea of the rapture, the doctrine of the rapture, is wrapped around the doctrine of the church. The church begins at Pentecost, Acts 2. That's very clear. And when does it end? It ends with the rapture. Jesus says, I'm coming back for you, John 14. And so it's when he comes back. Then the church age, if you will, the church is complete. Now, those who, and that's very specific and very clear from verse 14, these people that are being addressed and discussed and summarized in verse 9 through 17 of people come out of the tribulation. That's very clear. That's what it's telling us. So they, if you believe in the rapture at the beginning, then these are people after the church that, that was taken out of the world. Presumably then, even if you're not a Christian, the word is still there. Absolutely. And you can look at it and then become a believer. That's right. That's right. absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And the there are, will be other. We're going to, when we get to chapter 11, you're going to see other representatives of God's gospel message that will be available. There are going to be multiple ways in which God's going to have his testimony even during this horrific period that Jesus calls the tribulation period. But the church will be gone. As an institution, the body of Christ will be going to have been completed. All right. Let's go on to the next one, the fifth, excuse me, the fourth trumpet. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten, so that a third of them might be darkened, and the day might not shine for a third of it, and night in the same way. All right, what is verse 12 telling us? <coughs> this, is, this is very, I'm going to go back to this in a minute. This is something that is throughout the day of the Lord language of the Bible. And I would invite you to just go back for just a minute. I want to illustrate this to Luke chapter 21 for just a minute. 
the Lord Jesus in Luke 21, verse 25, again, that's Luke 21, verse 25, is he's, he's teaching about the end times. He's teaching about his return. And he's describing the things that, that those who are alive at this time, the tribulation, what should they be looking for? In verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and upon the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Okay, what do you see in verse 25 or verse Luke 21? The, the sun, the moon, the stars are all going to be affected. This passage, which we just read, verse 12 of Revelation chapter 8, is giving us more information as to what that's going to be like and when it's going to occur. Because Jesus is using the word signs. When you, now, you and I, Lord willing, will not be here. When this is seen, that the, the heavenly bodies are affected, and the capacity of them to give light to planet Earth in the daytime and in the nighttime are going to be dramatically affected. Jesus said, when you see that, that's another sign that my return is getting very close. You see? And it's wrapped around these judgments during the, during the period of the tribulation. So again, and I mean, if you go back, and, and we don't, we won't do that because that is really a long and tedious thing to do. But if you go back through the day of the Lord references in the Old Testament, it talks about all these cosmological things, uh, 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 astronomical things happening. Not cosmological, astronomical things happening. And the effect that has on planet Earth. And that's all he's saying. This is the day of the Lord, judgment being poured out on his rebellious planet. You know, when you think about this, there'll be some of our relatives, depending on when. If they, that's right. If, if it's, so, it's very soon, then you're right. There'll be people who are alive today that reject the Lord that would be a part of this. Yeah, and, and so we need to love them to Christ and Christ with them. It is a motivation for us, correct? It's a motivation for us to do what we can to make it available for people to respond to the message, to pray for them, to witness to them. That's right. All right. Verse 13. And I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. That's very important because there are going to be three woes coming up here to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So this is a transitional verse. This sounds, I don't mean this to sound coy, but it's almost like if you think these first four were bad, you haven't seen anything yet. The remaining three of this series of seven are horrific. So you have one woe, followed by a second woe, followed by a third woe. There is an intensity about these, and you'll see why in a minute. So, are you still with me? Verse 1 of the ninth chapter. And the fifth angel sounded, in other words, he's blowing the shofar home. And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit 
was given to him, and he opened. Okay, now, you must connect star with the pronoun him at the end of verse 1 and the pronoun he at the beginning of verse 2. So the star is an individual person. As you will see in just a second, it is either Satan or a powerful demonic being. Now, the bottomless pit, is that the first time that is used in the Bible? No. The bottomless pit is used numerous times in the scriptures as the abode of the demonic host. So this isn't new. We're not, this isn't the first time we're exposed to this. What we're learning is this star falls from heaven, this entity who's going to open the bottomless pit. And it, what, what is released is quite terrifying, as you'll see in just a minute. Yes. Now, what? Um, my version says shaft of the abyss. Shaft of the abyss, yes. It is the same thing, yeah. Abyss, not to be very technical, abyss is just actually transliterating a Greek word, A-B-Y-S-S. They're transliterating it from the Greek. And abyss is just another, uh, if you bring it into English, it would be like pit. It's bottomless, it's it's like a pit, and as, as Luke, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, and many other places in the Old and New Testament, this is the abode of the demonic hosts, the servants of Satan. In my translation, it says, and there was given to him the key of that's, the pit. Of that's the right. Place. Yeah, I, I actually didn't read verse 2 yet. It just says, and he opened the bottomless pit from that key that had been given to him, and smoke went up out of the pit, I'm in verse 2, like the smoke, uh, again, see, it's a simile, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth. And power was given to them, notice, as the scorpions of the earth have power. It doesn't say they are scorpions. It says as the scorpions have power. And they were told they should not eat the grass, hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree. Why is that a strange command? Because that's what locusts eat. And I don't mean to get dramatic here, but that's what that's what locusts the locusts that's what locusts eat. They eat the green stuff. They eat the vegetation. But verse four says, "But only to the men who do not have the seal of God on their forehead." And they were not intended to kill anyone, but to torment them for five months, and their torment was like. Again, that's a simile, like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. All right, now I want to make some comments here. It's very interesting that the description of these beings is like locust. But you have to remember verse 1 and verse 2. Where are they coming from? The bottomless pit, the abyss. So these scorpion-like creatures that torment human beings, these are demonic hosts. 
This is demonic power attacking and hurting, but not killing humans who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. That's figurative language, meaning what? Those who have not put their faith in the Lord. The other thing that's very interesting is in the Old Testament, especially, and I know this is not a book that you probably have studied recently, but in the minor prophet of Joel, Joel talks about the day of the Lord when locusts come upon the earth. So it's, it's that, you see, again, this is not new truth. It's expanding on truth we already have learned in the prophets of the Old Testament. It's giving a lot more specific information, and it's telling us they're not going to eat what a normal locust eats, the vegetation of earth. Their focus is to attack the image bearers of God who have not put their faith in his son. Again, this is, it's, it's, per, it's a perfect illustration of day of the Lord language and day of the Lord events. It's not new. It's just adding to what we study in other parts of the Bible. That's why I've tried to say this a zillion times. As you study the book of Revelation, if you study the other parts of God's word, this all comes together. All right. Jim, yeah. um, today people uh, take lightly uh, the word demons. Uh, there was a comedian that once said, the devil made me do it, Flip mm-hmm. Wilson, you know, and that guy. Um, but people tend to play down the role of demons because we've identified I mean, because they have maybe a different frame of reference than the biblical frame of reference, which is real, if you believe the Bible is true. And so it's not so mystical as it is really unknown, but there is a source of it, and it, they are demons which, whose father is the devil, would you say, or Satan? He is their ruler. And and they are real. It's not mystical. It's not Mm -hmm. far out. It's reality. No, that is is really true. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because we fight not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, and dominions in the heavenlies. They're not angels. They're our enemy. One of the interesting things about living in the United States right now in the 21st century is when you talk about a supernatural spiritual world where there are demonic power, people laugh at you and think you're an idiot, think that you're, you're really, you're really, you're such an antiquated person in your beliefs. Because in our very Western materialistic comfortable world, um, you don't see that evidence like you do if you go to Haiti. You talk to somebody in Haiti, you talk about demonic power, they have absolutely no problem believing it. I totally agree with that. I see it every day in my life. You spend time in Africa, and I don't, I don't even mean in the backward you know, river valleys where some still tribal... I'm talking about in the cities and urban areas. The belief and understanding of demonic power is very common. You go to India, very common. They have no trouble believing that. couple of observations. Number one, we have a secular government that has taught us to disbelieve. 
and therefore, not only do you not believe yeah. in God, Christ, you don't believe believe in the demons either. The other thing is, I, I, I for some reason, I've been thinking a lot lately about loving your enemies. Mm. And it's I a good think thing to think about. <laughs> to understand that they, what's affecting them, certainly is their own human sinful nature, but also the demons around mm-hmm. them or in them. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that's one reason we reach out to try to bring them to the Lord, get rid of them. Absolutely. One of the men in my um, 6.30 a.m. Bible study on Wednesdays, he's a really neat guy. He's a retired policeman. He's now working in a... Uh, in an organization with really problem children, you know, delinquents, if you want to give them that, but I mean, really difficult guys and guys that he works with the men. And earlier this week, this, this, I wasn't prepared for this. I was just finished. We've been talking about the beginning of Ephesians chapter four. He says, can I talk to you? And so we walked out to the parking lot. I said, sure. And he's telling me about this young man, you know, I think it was Monday of this week who was in, uh, just out of control, I mean, rage and throwing things, just out of control. And he goes up to him and says, look, you, you have to stop this. What can I do for you? He says, put me in a dark room. And he was shocked. Uh, what do you mean? Put me in a dark room. And so Barry took him and put him in a, in a facility, put him in a room, turned the lights off, and shut the door and let him in there for a while. And he would think, well, he'll just calm down, cool down. He went in later on that morning, and this young man had taken a piece of chalk and written on the whole, across the whole wall, Satan, and underneath it, a pentagram. Now, I don't know how you process something like that, but here's an example of a guy, it would seem to me, that is manifesting something demonic going on in his life. And, and Barry's just telling me, I come across kids like this all the time, but it was so instructive. What he wanted was to go into a dark room where there was absolutely no light. And that's how he calmed down as he wrote Satan and put a pentagram on. Now you can say, well, he's mentally ill. He's not mentally ill. He's a very smart, smart young man. But it's telling us something. And we we ignore those kinds of things to our peril. That is real. That is part of the real world. In our West Western mentality, we don't often think of it that way, but that is that is a part of the reality. And he was just, he says, what do I do? And, you know, I said, well, I don't have any silver bullet to this. But here's just a classic, a classic illustration of spiritual warfare. It really is. And so I, I called my wife and some others, and I just said, let's, let's pray for him, as he is now working with this young man, because he is in a spiritual battle for the heart and soul of this young man. And the answer to that, that young man, is not only good counseling, and that's part of it, but he needs to find Christ to overcome that power. Because he, Satan has him by the throat, and he's going to self-destruct. You say secular counseling won't In my judgment, that's not going to be adequate. It's my, it's my view of it. I don't think that'll be adequate. It's not going to solve the real problem in this young man's life. Because Barry couldn't explain why he was going into such a rage. He isn't angry, it was rage. And, and it was, he was just literally out of control. Obviously, you know, sin in the flesh, sin in 
sorts of ways. Are we as believers untouchable by demonic? We are, Andrew. Uh, we, Satan and his dominion, kingdom of darkness, has absolutely no authority over us unless we give him that authority. So, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, Peter okay. writes in his first epistle, chapter 5, says, be careful, for Satan uh, parades around, trying to translate exactly how it is in the Greek, but parades around ready to pounce like a roaring lion. So he's looking for your vulnerabilities. He's looking for your weaknesses, and he will exploit those to his nefarious ends. But Satan and demonic power have no authority over us whatsoever unless we allow them to have authority. I know you've heard of this man before, but C.S. Lewis has written, uh, I think, my son, it's the favorite book that he wrote. Uh, my, my son, um, and, and I talk about things that we're reading, but he loves that book because what... What Lewis does, it's called the Screw Tape Letters, uh, and it's it's very creative, which is how Lewis writes. But he ha- the scene is of a, a professional, well-trained, long-run demonic sergeant training a group of young demons. Now, you know that story is in one sense silly, but it's like a, an allegory. And what he does is he's just talking. Now, look, when we're when we're working in, in Western Europe or the United States, our goal is we don't even want them to know we exist. That's our goal. We just we have to pretend, we have to get across to them. Our message to them is we don't exist. Therefore, we can get them. <laughs> what is taught in schools today? Yeah. Where, and then he says, but when we're, and then he just uses all kinds of, but it's really, it's because he's, he's learning, this is Lewis, learning from the things you read in the scriptures about the strategies of Satan. And to our own, if you know the Lord Jesus, he has no authority over you. Don't look under your bed every night for demons. I mean, that's not how we're, that's not the response. But at the same time, there is a real world of spiritual warfare out there. And for those who don't know Christ, some of them, and this, I believe this young man that and he's, this, my friend is working with is an example. He has him by the throat, and it's, a, it's really, really sad. This, he says he has such potential. He's just he's out of control. It's very interesting that we came across the name of the primary junior demon. Wormwood. Yeah, Wormwood. Yeah, yeah. And that is in the screw tape letters, yeah. too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, my goodness, what should we do here? Um, I'm in verse 7. Um, let's just do one verse, and then I think we better stop, because I see it's after quarter up. And the appearance of the locust was like, now notice it's simile, like horses prepared for battle and on their heads, as it were, crowns like gold, their faces like the faces of men, their hair like the hair of women, their teeth like the lion, teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. Sounds of their wings was like sounds of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. And they had tails like scorpions and stings. In their ta- tails was the power to hurt men for five months. Now I want to talk about that next week. Because the abyss is the origin of these. These are not human beings. These are demonic beings who have been given the power for five months to torment. 
And then I want to go to something Jesus said in Matthew 24 next week. And I want to talk about what's verse 11 telling us. Though we have a lot to do as we finish the sixth, excuse me, the fifth trumpet next week. Are you okay with this, what we're doing step by step by step through this? You are where very few human beings in the United States of America are. You're starting to understand the book of Revelation. Maybe you're not, but I think you are. I hope you are. All right, we'll just keep plugging away. Lord, we're thankful that as 1 John chapter 2 teaches, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. We are not to fear or cower in, in fear before the demonic host or before Satan. The Lord Jesus Christ has triumphed over him in our lives. Uh, that kind of evil has absolutely no authority over us unless we allow them to have authority. We belong to you. We are part of the, the triumph of the completion of the redemptive program at the cross and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. In a sense, then, we are on the winning side. We do not fear them. Lord, at the same time, we are aware, as my friend was sharing this morning after our class, of evidence of that even in the United States. But this young man who is so out of control that he wants to go into a dark room and writes Satan, those kinds of things, that's just not a mental disturbance. There's something nefarious going on in his life. Lord, I pray for that young man. I don't know anything about him. But the hope for him is to be released from that. And that can only come through Christ. I pray for him to that end today. Pray for all of us. We are reading about the coming day of the Lord. We're reading about the events that are in the Bible of what it will be like before Christ returns. And it's just demonstrating again to us that this is the time when you will call all to account, when you will bring all of the things of evil to the conclusion, and you will then usher in your coming kingdom. We look forward to that. You have chosen to reveal this to us. You've chosen to explain it to us. We want to do our best to try to understand it. And I think it was Fred who mentioned this also should be motivating us to think about loved ones, friends, close people in our lives that have not yet put their faith in Christ. We, we want them to do that because we do not want anyone that we know or love to face this. So, Lord, we just commit that to you. We want to be your representatives. Help us to do that well. In your name of your son, we pray. And we pray for the daughter of... Uh, I think it's Mike, um, who's been with us several times over the last several months. Uh, we, we're not clear at all on what the specifics are, but she's very, very ill, and apparently it's, it's life-threatening. Lord, would you be gracious to her? Would you give wisdom to the medical people uh, and all those that are trying to serve her, minister her to her medically, that her life would be preserved, if that's pleasing to you? We would just pray for her and commit her to you, and we'll trust that to you. You know all those specific details, even though we don't. And in that, we have confidence. We trust her to you in the name again of Christ. And by his authority, we pray. Amen.